episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in Silver Lake and in Malibu. Aloe is an amazing treatment center that treats its clients with connection and compassion rather than control. It was created by our good friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and the other Bob. And Aloe is an amazing place. They have a staff with decades of experience treating addiction as well as co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. If you are kicking heroin or benzos or alcohol or cocaine, Aloe makes sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is crucial. I have friends at Aloe. They say it's great. I believe them. They have amenities like surfing, fucking sweat lodges, the amazingly spiritual sound bath meditation, and much more. If you're fucked and you need a place to get well and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I totally, totally, totally recommend Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the Sober Buddy app. It is now available. Many of you love the Sober Buddy daily emails. This app takes it to the next level. Sober Buddy checks in on you every day to see how you're feeling and give you tips and motivation based upon your mood. The daily challenges shift and change based on how you interact with Buddy on the app, and it also keeps track of all of your challenges and lists. Plus, there's a super satisfying sober tracker with confetti explosions, and even a cynic like me loves confetti explosions. Search for Your Sober Buddy in the App Store. Again, it's Your Sober Buddy. We cannot have enough tools when dealing with addiction. Check out the Your Sober Buddy app in the App Store. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power of the Dopey Patreon account. I've been really, really, really working hard at Patreon 
everyone in the dopey community is working hard at Patreon. This week, we have Jed from Church and Other Drugs. He talks about depression and being medicated and having co-occurring mental health disorders. So if that's something that's in your story, I would go to www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast and check it out. If you love dopey, kick down a few bucks. I'm talking like 10 cents a day would alter my life and maybe take me out of the deli finally. There's tons of good stuff on Patreon. Check it out. Help a brother out. Also, if you want amazing dopey gear, go to www.dopeypodcast.com to the dopey store. We work with a company called SRO Prints who are totally made up of recovering heroin addicts, and we have a lot of cool stuff out. The Good So Bad shirt is out. The super cool dopey um, new dopey tank top is out. The new dopey long sleeve. And most importantly, the dopey coffee mug. I just got one in the mail. It is awesome. Please check that out. If you guys want the dopey stickers, just Venmo me. If you want a ski hat or you want socks, just Venmo me. And do me a favor. Go on to iTunes. Hit subscribe on Dopey. Leave a five-star review. It'll make my dad happy. Uh, it'll make Chris happy wherever he is. Enough with the ads. Here is the fucking show. Let's Where? hit these motherfuckers with some dopey, dude. <laughs> Welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm sweating like a pig in my attic. It's like 120 degrees up here. And who makes me so happy to come on the show but my old friend, Ray. Welcome back to the show, Ray. Hi, Dave. Nice to be back. It's hot out there. Dude, it's fucking hot up here. Three floors up, fucking all the heat rising, surrounded by junk, air conditioner off. You don't have any air conditioning in your attic. I do, but I have to shut it off to make the show or else it'll just sound terrible. Yeah, I just turned mine off too. I'm in the attic too. I'm in the attic of my building. Well, you're in your apartment with a beautiful skylight and white walls, air conditioned, luxury (laughs) style. (laughs) I was doing some yard work upstate this morning. I couldn't stay out there for more than 10 minutes. I'd be like, because it's not so hot. It's just super humid. It's both hot and humid, and I'm going to tell you a quick story about my morning before we get into the gardening portion of the show. And before we get into any portion of the show, you know our good friend Quincy just celebrated 12 years of of recovery. Speaking of Congratulations, Quincy. Speaking of uh, gardening. But so me and Nora, Nora's friend Elizabeth and Susan went to go swim in the bay this morning. Okay? Nice. So we went swimming in the bay. And um, it was also really funny because Elizabeth was trying to scare Nora by telling Nora these ghost stories. And Elizabeth wound up scaring herself and we had to leave. (laughs) Um, Wait, like ghost, like ocean ghost stories? Yeah, she said she had a dream about a girl and she was like, she couldn't think of the girl's name. She was like, her name was Lily on. Her name was Lily (laughs) on. And she haunted the bay, and, 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 and Elizabeth scared the shit out of herself. First, Nora got scared. <laughs> then I started making fun of Elizabeth. Then Elizabeth got really scared. And then we're leaving, and there's a dude who works at the bay that we go to at the beach. And yeah. uh, he's an older uh, 
Costa Rican fellow. Like he's probably 90 years old, but mm-hmm. ge- but guess what his name is? Lillian? No, his name is Ray. And Susan oh. sees him and she thinks it's you. And she's like, hey man, what's up, Ray? <laughs> <laughs> what did Ray say? Ray's like, hey Susan. <laughs> Susan's sure. <laughs> Maybe it was me. Susan is sure it's you. So now, because now, because she talks to you on the phone, she goes, hey Ray. Hey man, you know, and and this hey, dude, Susan. isn't that so funny? Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of us. There's a lot of Rays. Wow, that's the other funny thing is that, uh, you know, Ray, his real name is Stephen. What? And he chose his name. I always and I just thought Ray was trying to be cool that he chose his name Ray to be cool and making fun of the fact that he didn't know about the famous jazz uh bass player named ray brown but ray revealed to me in the last three weeks that ray is his father's name which is it's a huge piece of information ray don't you think no everybody knows that so i just was remiss in not knowing basically well maybe not everybody but yeah that's my father well there you go and that's you they were gonna they almost named me jackson brown because that's my family name also Somebody wrote into Dopey Patreon with a question of who do you think would win in a fight, Jackson Brown or James Taylor? Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Well, we know J- Jackson Brown. We saw him fighting with his wife, so he has a history of fighting. Um, I don't know. I think James Taylor is bigger. James Taylor looks crazy. James Taylor looks like a dude I, in the country that yeah, would fucking choke I, I, out Jackson Brown, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, on, I'm for James Taylor. Everybody is for JT uh, yeah. in that fight. So how you doing, Ray? What's going on with you? I'm good. I went up to the country for like four days, and I went swimming in the ocean. I went swimming in the lake uh, and did some gardening, and uh, I harvested the garlic I planted last year, which is not very successful, but it was okay. That's awesome. And, and I, I was I was very, very all about you getting out of the city for a few days. I even made him listen to Canned Heat, Dopey Nation. Yeah, go to the country. And Ray, why don't you tell the Dopey Nation about, uh, about what you learned about Canned Heat? I learned that the guy who sings the song, the most famous song, like died right after that. I think they played Woodstock and then he died like a few days later on some like weird was it a drug overdose or some weird circumstances? But I think they're still playing today. I'm like, you know how bands go on and on. I don't know. I, I didn't know anything about Candy, and I really didn't like that song, but I learned a lot about them. They were like <laughs> hardcore blues guys, like in wherever they were from, in Boston. They from I don't Boston? Know. I don't know. And we learned but the guy's like, name is Blind Owl. He died from a barbiturate overdose. They have... So and and Ray, they rock, right? Can heat fucking rocks. Yeah, I listened to their other stuff and it was good. I don't know why I never listened to them before. Well, because they're very ugly. First of all, they're an ugly <laughs> bunch. They're an ugly bunch of guys. That's why. But the anthem of every summer is going up the country. So I don't know. Well, whoever. Well, it's, that's a cover song. It's like by a blues guy from the twenties. But whoever owns that song has made a shitload of money because that is in so many ads. That's in so many different kind of ads. Well, the truth is that, uh, and I've said this on the show many times, that when I was in college, I, me and my friends would sit around and we would watch the Woodstock movie 
over and over and over again. And we went to school in upstate New York and we would drive around (laughs) listening to Candy (laughs) and singing Going Up the Country. You really know Candy. Yeah, I'm a really big fan of Candy. I think they're a really rocking band. And I mean, I'm old and whatever, but listen to Opie Nation. I would check out Canned Heat. I mean, I like three Canned Heat songs. I like Going Up the Country, I like On the Road Again, and I like Time Was. After that, I don't really know anything. Huh? Yeah, I listened to Time Was. I like Time Was. I'd never heard that before. So that's my that's my my rockin' old school dopey music suggestion. Now there's another. I, what are we gonna I say? heard something amazing in an AA meeting. A friend of mine who I've known for a long time, who like comes to see me play, and I I knew he, he's like an old dude, and I knew he was you know had had some history, but he was like, well, the first time I took, he's talking about his drug use. He's like. The first time I took acid um, was with Jimi Hendrix. Uh, Jimi had some <laughs> acid, and he was like, do you want to try this? And I'm like, sure. And then, like, I think Jimi talked him through the trip. And he's like, and then uh, when Janice came to New York, she called me because she wanted some heroin, and I didn't really know where to get heroin. He just kept telling, like, Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Amazing stories like this. I'm like, dude, I've known you for, like, so long. I've never heard any of this. Whose story was this? Pardon? Who was this? A friend of mine from from the program from the fellowship. Well, I don't know him from the program. I know him from real life, but he's in there. Yeah, that's crazy. That is that crazy. And there's like um, there's like so many more, but those are just you know it's just Jimmy and Janice. Like that's (laughs) that's a great one. That's too funny. Um, So how how is it going? I mean, last we heard, Ray is back in his recovery program. He's off of the citrulline and he's talking to his sponsor and doing Zoom meetings. Well, where are we at now? Right. Yeah, I I talked to my sponsor up there, and um, I was telling him about he he says when I'm off the sertraline, which I think I am, then we can do fourth the fourth step. We've gone through the first three steps, and uh, and I said, well, one clue I have is that sertraline like fucked up my sex thoughts, and it made me like really weird, and like, and I'm back to however I was before. I'm back to normal. So to me, that means like. There's none left in my brain, and um, so what was yeah, the what was the what was the citrulline kink? I don't want to say. Just say. It just made me weird and kinky, like in a way that I'm not usually. So, as opposed to the old school drinking urine and eating pubic no, hair, what's the new? Me. What's the citrulline kink? Tell me. I need. I need. No, nobody, just, we need to know. A little dark, and I'm like, that's not me. I mean. I don't know. Oh my God! I cannot believe that we're going to be deprived of this amazing morsel of information. I'll tell you in private. Oh my goodness, that's good. <laughs> that shows growth right there. So how does? Well, I'll it- tell you my my favorite porn star is this guy called Johnny Forza. If you want to Google him, F O R Z A, and that's like that's what I like. And I lost interest in Johnny Forza. <laughs> does Johnny Forza sometimes wear wrestling ringlets? He has, yeah. Does he ever pull garlic from the garden? <laughs> no. If you know oh, what man, I mean. Like garlic was a, garlic was a disappointment, but it tasted really good. It was like really it's not like supermarket garlic. So is it like you like to give orders or you like to what do you like to do? Is it like are there spurs involved or anything like that? <laughs> There's no spurs. <laughs> do you have spurs? My, my favorite porn is like POV of like Johnny Forza blowing me. Oh, so it's like you're in the porno with Johnny Forza. Yeah. Johnny Forza is not a great porn name. 
Johnny Foreskin. Johnny Foreskin. Might his, that might be his real name. I don't know. All right, we don't need to know any more about your your kinks no. and stuff. No, we don't. Are you interested? We know, what? We know far too much as it is. Well, what do we know? We know that the taste of urine doesn't really bother you. Uh, pubic hair in your teeth is, 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 stop. is okay. I told, you to, I told you to stop saying this. Now they're like posting things on Dopey Nation about me like licking toilet rooms. <laughs> no, that was a one-time, it was a one-time thing. Well, the, here's the more important question. Is what? how has being off the citrulline um, helped with your obsessive thinking or, or have you gone back to the obsessive thinking? No, I haven't. Not, not really. Just, I had one night where, you know, I don't really drink caffeine and, um, I drank like a pot of tea at like noon. And then I was up and I talked to my sponsor Monday through Friday. So I'd spoken to him Friday afternoon and I was up all night Friday. I couldn't sleep. And I swear if I'd had something here to drink, I would have done it. And then I go to a meeting on Saturday with my sponsor, you know, online and I didn't, I didn't contact him because I thought, I'm cool. But Dave was like, you should have contacted him. And I told him this. And he's like, yeah, in those kind of cases, talk to me on a Saturday. Call, call me anytime if you're, like, thinking of drinking, you know, on Friday night. But I was up all night long, Friday, and then I didn't go to sleep. And I thought, I'll go to sleep eventually. But then the sun was coming up. It was like, that's how caffeine affects me. Like, I just can't sleep. And then if I'm watching a movie or something, I'm not having obsessive thoughts. But if I'm lying in bed trying to sleep and right. I'm wide awake, I did have them. Right. But it's fine. That's when those thoughts come. So more, more, you know, moreover, you're enjoying your recovery. So far, it's, it's working out. It's working, yeah. I really like this guy. Like, I really enjoy talking to him. And we haven't done too much, like, we haven't done too much. We just talk every night and, you know, we're separated by coronavirus and, uh, but he's like, eventually we're going to meet like on a park bench and go over the fourth step. And he's, he sent me a thing tonight with like stuff to go. He sent me physical literature in the mail. What is it? It's like a worksheet, you know, like a fourth step worksheet. I went to my and, meeting this morning and yeah. I, I was so guided by the spirit that people ran to me after the meeting to get me to speak at their meeting. That's really? how that means you're. What? Yeah, you're sending you're sending that vibe off. I've, I talked to my sponsor about that, and he's like, "If you go to a meeting and you're really good, the, the people will come to you, and it can be overwhelming if you're like giving that vibe off, and then everybody wants you to speak." I was on fire. I was spiritually alit in this in this meeting this morning. It was amazing. That's great. Yeah. Well, it was all right. And, um, and you asked me for my address, and I was like. I was giving you the upstate address and you're like, no. And then I'm like, what are you going to send me? And you're like, junk. <laughs> and I'm like, you mean dope? And you're like, no, just junk. No, I'm going to send, we're, we're sending you some dopey merchandise and it's not junk. I was just being stupid. I was making a play okay. on the dope junk term. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, there's a crazy amount of new stuff in the dopey store. And, uh, and I just got a box of crazy unlicensed dopey shit from Misty and uh, it's pretty impressive, a pretty impressive amount of stuff. Uh, I've got some Misty merch. Nice. I figured that the Dopey Nation's turned on you since you've left the Dopey Zoom jilted. No. No, no they didn't. <laughs> they didn't turn on you? Dopey Nation, have you turned on the Great Ray or no? No, they have not. I talked to everybody in the Dopey Nation in private, in direct, you know, whatever, uh, messages. Yes. Very good. Do you want to hear another funny, interesting story? Yeah, tell me. So 
we're actually we've given away our sixth dopey scholarship to a young woman in wow. Florida. Her name is um, Danielle, and she's going to the Aredi Recovery, which is some place. It's owned by uh, Delphi Behavior Health, and uh, and Pat from Delphi hooked it up, and Dom helped us hook it up. And this is from uh, my friend Justin, who's been on the show, and he's helping to coordinate the the dopey scholarship recipients. Justin has really stepped up. He's he thinks that there can be a dopey foundation of scholarship recipients where people are going to treatment. But um he sends me that and then he sends me this. He's he said Danielle is at a ready recovery, owner by Delphi Behavioral Health. If you can please mention Delphi and that Pat and Dom from there uh hook us up. And I was like great and he puts a heart. Then he writes Also, I just learned that the Rolling Stones song Angel is called Angie. I'm disappointed (laughs) and feel cheated. Can you believe that? (laughs) Wait, they thought it was Angel. Justin, and Justin's a crazy, he's a crazy like fish fan, but he didn't know that that Angie was called Angie. He thought it was called Angel. Angel, Angie. Well, at one point, Mick kind of makes it sound like he says Andy. But it's, you know, I heard Angie Bowie uh, interviewed once. and They're like, they say Angie, Angie Stone's Angie was written about you. Is that true? And she goes, I don't know. There have been so many songs written about me. It's hard to keep track. <laughs> like, she's such a bullshit artist. But no, but that song, that song was written about Anita Pallenberg. It's about Anita, yeah. But, but a, uh, Angie took credit for it, yeah. Well, I, I mean, be- the most amazing one is, what's her name? Patty, uh, Patty Boyd, where she had uh, Layla, uh, Layla. Uh, Lady to um and something something by the Beatles Layla and Beautiful Tonight are all about her. That's an amazing woman. I think Lay Down Sally is also about her. And that yeah, amazing. Like actually, I don't know. Is- I don't. I don't. I don't know if actually Lay Down Sally is about <laughs> her. But I think that's interesting to be the uh, the muse of such amazing rock and roll music. That is interesting. Yeah. Um. So I am growing. Basil, lemon basil, sweet basil, thyme, fucking fennel, fucking mint. I bought peppermint the other day. I bought a new purple basil. I have fucking yellow squash, green squash, cherry tomatoes, big fat tomatoes, cucumbers, fucking hot peppers, string beans, green peppers, and the latest addition is blueberries. Oh my God! You're gonna have so much food, you're not gonna be able to eat it because so, it's all gonna come at once. You're gonna have to can it and freeze it. Yeah, you think I'm gonna start canning fucking food, Ray? <laughs> yeah, Pioneer Dave. But it's pretty exciting. It's pretty I exciting. I can't believe you got blueberries. That's a that's an investment in the future that you don't get those the first year. I have some coming. I have lots of blueberries every oh. day. Every day we go and we pick blueberries as a family. Do you have that uh, mint uh, quarantined or in in what do you call it like? contained no i don't but for some reason It'll, the birds it's gonna the birds gonna aren't eating over. them the birds aren't eating no, the blueberries no the mint the mint is gonna take over your whole garden every well i've 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 pulled a shitload of mint um and the mint is maintained the mint is under oh. control right it is oh, under good. i planted bamboo and it went insane yeah bamboo man is like it is it is crazy we have bamboo fucking growing in the back um but it's not coming through um so this week on Dopey, we have this dude from Top Chef. His name is Gregory Gorday. And um, yeah. 
It was a pleasure to have him on. I love Top Chef. And um, and I wanted Ray to watch Top Chef so he could know who Gregory Gorday is. But Ray never saw Top Chef, did you, Ray? I've never seen Top Chef, and I tried to watch Top Chef, but I couldn't watch. I couldn't get it for free. But I got Canadian Top Chef, which was horrible, and it was like just like drum rolls and like so over like tonight on Top Chef. And it was like I turned it off after like. 20 seconds. I bet you it's I like, watch- I bet you it's like this next challenge. We're about to cook some pancakes, eh? <laughs> and they were like, you have 20 seconds to grab all the ingredients and cook this. And they all run. And they, I don't know. I, it's, it's not my thing, but I watched this guy's Ted talk and he's really cool. I really dug that. Well, Gregory, I saw like a couple of interviews with him. Gregory admitted on the show several times that he was in recovery, and I and I'm a huge Top Chef fan. I got into watching Top Chef when I uh, when I was on heroin in Los Angeles, and I just found it to be the most relaxing show ever. And I remember when we actually left L.A. and we flew um, to Burlington, Vermont. I just watched Top Chef on the flight. But the thing that I remember more than anything, right, is I always wore jeans that were way too big for me. And, yeah. uh, and when we went through the fucking security, I, I, we had two cats with us. And I was holding onto the cat and they made me take my belt off and the cat jumped on my head, like embedded its claws <laughs> in my head and my pants fell down to my ankles and I'm standing there in the airport. I'm also like dope sick. I had just gotten off of methadone and heroin and, uh, and, and like the cat is fucking embedded in my skull. It was Wait, terrible. you're holding a cat with no cat, cat carrier. You're just holding the cat. No, you have to put the cat carrier through the x-ray machine. Oh, so you have to hold the cat and your pants fell down. My pants fell down. The cat <laughs> climbs my head and, and like it was very embarrassing. And that's I'm what, just surprised Top Chef has been on that long. Dude, I used to fucking get high and watch Top Chef. I used to like I was I remember in the beginning I was living at my parents' house and what I would always do is I would get the nicest meal I could, like I'd go to a nice restaurant and I would eat it slowly while Top Chef played and I would enjoy like every and morsel pretend. of food and pretend it was my food was made by some Top Chef when you know that was never the case. And I would I would have dessert, you know what I mean? I would really make a whole a whole thing of it. And 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 now like it's 20 years later and I still watch it. I don't think I missed an episode. Nora loves Top Chef. Linda has gotten into it. So when, when I got Gregory on, Nora was incredibly excited. Is it on the Food Network? No, it's on Bravo. Oh. Dopey Nation, do you guys watch Top Chef? I don't know. Also, uh, before- I like that he was talking about one of the other contestants was going to had a thing. He was going to do Southern Plantation food, which is like, what is that? Like, I mean, like early American food was like, not that great if you looked at like it was kind of basic of like no it's that delicious south stuff but the, the, the it's all going to come out in the interview we'll talk about it after the the interview no. is played great well, don't that, you're going to blow the show for everybody i'm yeah. sorry i'm just thinking like i grew up in the south and like we would go to family reunions with my 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 country relatives and the dishes they would bring were just like so gross and we were like <laughs> Oh, we have to eat a little of this so Aunt Sister can like won't get upset with us. No, he it looked like it was good food what he made. But before no. we play the Gregory interview, I just want to remind everyone, including you, Ray, that July twenty yeah. fourth is Dopey, Dopey Day. Dopey Day. It's the day of the dopes. I'm thinking we should call it Christmas in July because Dopey Day is so stupid. 
That's Fucking. good. Christmas in July. So what do you guys think, Dopey Nation? Should we call it Dopey Day or Christmas in July? Or am I fucked up that I keep changing the name just a few weeks out? What do you think? Dopey Christmas in July. A dopey Christmas. But but the real Christmas is August 16th. <laughs> and then the other Christmas is December 25th. So what the fuck do we do about that, <laughs> Ray? Huh? I've got to. I've got to. I thought about it on the train down. I'm like, I should do my dopey day portrait, but I didn't do it. Ray's like, just, you have no ideas. You never have any ideas for this thing. Well, also, I said I would listen to the interview on the way down, and I didn't do that. I did it when I got here. Anyway, here he is, Gregory Gorday. Thank you, Ray. Thanks. So this is very exciting. Um, I am on the phone with top chef and chef, New York City native, Oregon resident, Chef Gregory I said that terribly. Chef Gregory Gorday <laughs> is how I say your name correctly, right, Gregory? Yeah, you nailed it. Good job. Welcome to Dopey. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to talk today. Right on. I, I, I've been a fan of yours since you, you came on the Top Chef scene in Boston. I'm like a sick Top Chef fan. I used to get high and watch Top Chef. <laughs> Like I just found, I remember like I was, I kicked heroin and I, and I flew from Los Angeles to Vermont and I watched Top Chef on JetBlue and I was like, this is the most relaxing thing I've ever done. Somehow to watch that show is relaxing, but to be on, it must be very stressful, right? You know, what's crazy is I applied for Top Chef twice before um, I got on. So I went through two, three audition processes over the you know, before the, before my first run before the, so in the 12 year span before my first run, I had auditioned three times. And the first time I auditioned was like year two or three. And I literally had stayed up all night on Coke uh, and I, and I went to my interview wow. and it was like, it was bad. I was like sweaty. And I remember, uh, one of my chef friends had like a little bit of an insight and they're like, yeah, they just think something was a little bit off with you. <laughs> I wonder what it is. It's like, that's the other thing, right? I mean, so you were, what, what, what was the scene? Like, tell us the story of showing up at the top chef audition, basically coming down off Coke then. Uh, I just, I don't know. I mean, I just, it was just like, you know, like, I mean, I, so the high, I went through a seven year cocaine and alcohol addiction in New York city. I worked at Jean George at the time and, um, I worked at the flagship in George and Columbus circle and you know how it is, you know, when you're in your shit and you know, drugs are the number one thing, like you don't really not do drugs because you have other things going on. You know, like I didn't not get fucked up before my sister's wedding and, you know, miss half of it. You know, there's like a lot of things I just didn't manage drugs around. I just did my drugs. So when it was like the top chef interview, um, I felt excited to have a chance, but you know, I stayed up all night just like I did most nights. And, uh, I literally just like showered and like tried to like put on a different outfit and like went to my interview and, you know, I mean, I have like no fucking clue what I looked like or sounded <laughs> like, but, but my friend who, uh, oh yeah, he was on it. My friend Joey was on it and, uh, he was on it like really briefly early on. And he was like, yeah, they just thought something was a little bit off about you. <laughs> right. Right. So I did not get cast that year. Um, and then the second time I auditioned, like that was probably like 10 years later. Um, I was sober and I got a little bit further 
and then and then and then the third time around when I finally got cast for Boston, they like they sought me. So so when you when you I, I mean because one of the reasons obviously I was drawn to you because you talk about your recovery on the show uh, super openly, and I love yeah. that. And um, so the second time you auditioned when you were sober, did you present to them like? I was fucked up at the first audition and now I'm sober. Oh God, no, no. Oh God, no. <laughs> I think, I think that was, that was actually so early on in my recovery. If not within, if that was literally the first year of my recovery. Uh, if not a few months into recovery and you know, for me being really open, uh, I think top chef really forced me to be open about my recovery uh, I think for me getting sober a little bit later, you know, I got sober when I was 32, 33. And, you know, I just had a very clear plan of like who I wanted to be, what I wanted to do. You know, I was like definitely on the pink cloud for years, honestly. And, uh, you know, I was just really happy to be sober and really proud to be sober. But the thing about Top Chef is like, you know, like they're going to pull up different parts of you, parts of your personality, different parts of your life and make you kind of talk about them over and over and over again. Right. Uh, because you know, like you, you're still a character, you know, and, and you got cast because of certain things. So, um, and people just want to know about you, you know? So I, through them repeatedly asking me about certain things, I just got more and more comfortable speaking about it. And it was really, through that and the outpouring of support and, you know, being on TV and being open about recovery and sobriety and having people from all across the country reach out and chefs and say, thank you. Thank you for being brave. Thank you for showing your story. And I started seeing that being really vocal about my sobriety is actually, you know, a way that it, it helps other people, you know, because I got sober in AA and a lot of the thinking is it's anonymous. You know, you don't really attract people um, you, or, you know, if you don't promote AA, you, you know, there's a lot of anonymity. Um, you know, I even got a little bit of slack on social media in the beginning because people were like, well, you know, look at him touting his sobriety. But, you know, when I realized that it helped so many people, um, you know, showing them that you can recover and you can like live your life and you can achieve goals, um, it kind of enforced me and inspired me to just continue to be as vocal as possible in my sobriety. Right. It's interesting this era like where, you know, the the fellowship and the program talks about anonymity, but obviously you're helping people. You know, you're carrying the yeah. message yeah. either way. So it's it's interesting like that. Uh before we get I mean, I, I think it's funny because Top Chef loves to schmaltz it up so much, you know, with like the journey and this and the you know, yeah. all that stuff. Because but it also paints a beautiful picture. You know, uh it reminds me and this is gonna sound so stupid. I don't know if you ever watched The Price is Right. Yes. Do you remember in The Price is Right, at the end of The Price is Right, there were like two showcase showdowns. Like there was the shitty showcase showdown that was just like a couple of prizes here and there. And then there was like the story. It's like, come with us to Italy, you know, and you'll ride a Vespa scooter. And it's like the whole thing. And like that's what Top Chef nails so well. It's connecting the chef's story to the food rather than just the food. So they need to schmaltz it up. And I think, you know, you're... Your recovery is by no means schmaltz, and I love using the word schmaltz with a chef. I think that's fun. <laughs> I love schmaltz. Yeah. I, I mean, 
being a, you know, my, my dad's from Queens, uh, you know, uh, New York City, Queens, Jew, or Schmaltz. And I work at Katz's Deli. So Schmaltz is a big part of my life. Yeah. Um, I didn't tell you that. I actually work at Katz's. Um, I know your email address says that. I think it's amazing. Katz's is like one of the most legendary restaurants in America. Dude, when you come back, let me hook it up. But let's get let's get back to the more interesting part of the story. And the more yes. interesting part of the story is when did you start using? Like, when did your addiction show up in your life? Uh, I mean, growing up in Queens, uh, it was a fairly, you know, insular. I mean, it was a very controlled life. You know, I went to Catholic school. You know, I grew up, my parents were immigrants. Uh, they moved here when they were... Uh, in their late mid twenties, right. to kind of pursue education in school, and you know they just grew up extremely different than I grew up. They grew up in Haiti in like you know the forties, fifties, and sixties, and I grew up in New York City in the eighties and nineties. So it was just extremely different. And early on, you know, I was going into the city and making friends and just hanging out. And it really was when I started going to boarding school and just meeting lots of different kids from all across the country, you know, kids from the Upper East Side. Uh, but we, it just really started in high school, you know, smoking weed, mushrooms, acid, just like all that stuff in high school. What was um, the first drug that really caught you like, and you were like, I'm in like every day? <laughs> uh, so... My addiction didn't get bad till quite a few years after. I mean, there was high school, which is just like experimentation. There was college. I went to college in Montana. I went to the University of Montana, Missoula, Montana. And that was extremely different. You know, uh, you know, Montana's an interesting state. I had an amazing time. But, um, you know, there's like, you know, meth and, you know, there's, you know, like a trailer park and, you know, kind of like all those things that come with it, you know. So it's just like a very, very different slice of america um totally. but at the same time it was a really cool you know liberal arts school and it was the 90s so it was pretty much like the height of the rave era so my friends in new york would you know mail us ecstasy and ketamine to montana and we would throw raves and you know in town like we would do meth and you know my friends would stay up for like days at a time and um but I actually got out of that like totally fine. It was it was a lot of hardcore drug use, but at the same time, I worked all the time. You know, I had two jobs. Uh, I was super responsible, so it was just like kind of like hardcore recreational drug use, which was managed fairly decently. Um, it took kind of like the drug scene kind of going away, transitioning into like the. 2000s kind of bar scene which was like kind of focused on like doing cocaine and drinking because we were older right you know? and and that i still held on to like the club culture a little bit in new york city for as long as like it, it it went on but the whole mood transition to just kind of being older and just going to bars and, and just doing coke and and that's what sucked me in that's what really kind of brought me down um a pretty quick and aggressive cocaine addiction uh, to uh, 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 an addiction to freebasing cocaine for about a year and a half. Um, and at the end, you know, those two, drinking and cocaine, were kind of the two that brought me down to my knees. When you freebase, did you use the ether and all that? What's up? When you would freebase, it was with the ether or you just smoked the coke? 
Or you smoke crack? Uh, we would uh, a little bit, but we would we would cook it down and stuff like that ourselves. So yeah, with baking soda or with the ether? With baking soda. Right. All right. Yeah. Um. And and it's crazy because like it sounds like you kind of had that classic northeast drug addict pedigree of like taking acid and tripping out and smoking weed, and you kind of get acclimated, right? You get acclimated to taking drugs, but it didn't hit you like an addict until years later when it became yeah. coke. I think that's interesting because lots of people get caught up on on the meth and the ketamine. Like, why do you think that didn't happen like that? Um, I mean, there was definitely like a period of like smoking crystal in the city too, because that was like kind of a big thing in the city too. But I mean, I don't know. I think you know when I was younger, you know, I was maybe like still like super ambitious and just happy and carefree, and uh, you know, I love still love electronic music and, and club culture and rave culture, and you know, I still go to festivals and like all my friends are like sober DJs at this point, right? You know. Um, but that's still a big part of me. Um, so it really was something that I actually felt passionate about. It wasn't just like I wasn't just going out for the drugs. I was going out to listen to music. And it was like something that is actually like something that I care about quite a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it took like, you know, it would be like the party would end and, you know, everyone would responsibly go home and go to bed, you know, and I would go to the after party. And then, you know, some people who would come with me to the after party, like they would like go home and go to bed and, you know, I would just go to the after after party. Right. Each t- in each, each time frame, like, you know, you're hanging out with like a shadier crew until, you know, I find myself like, you know, in like the Bronx or in Harlem with like some random person, like, you know, like and he's like fucking shooting coke up his arm and I'm, <laughs> yeah. like, missing, I'm like missing the flights and like lying to people, you know? So it's just like. It catches up with you. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when did cooking, like when did actually cooking food and not cooking Coke come into the play? <laughs> so cooking, I started cooking when I was feeding myself for the first time in college in Montana because high school we were taken care of. And uh, even I went to NYU for one year, freshman year, and I lived at home, but I still, my mom cooked a lot. So it would really take like going to Montana and living on myself for the first time, living on my own for the first time and, and having to feed myself. That's when I started cooking. And very quickly, I realized that I enjoyed cooking. Um, by this time, I was like in my early 20s. And, you know, I, I just, I did not grow up cooking. I grew up surrounded by Haitian food like my entire life. I grew up around like lots of women who cooked, but I just never cooked. Um, so it took that and some friends seeing that I had a knack for it and my first two jobs were making sandwiches and pasta salads at a deli and washing dishes at a restaurant. And like, that was my foot in the door. And when I worked at the restaurant, the chef there, he saw a little bit of sparkle in my eye and he saw some talent in me and he's like, you should go to culinary school. Um, so I made a plan to go to culinary school after I got here from college. And, and that was it. And, you know, I went to CIA College Institute of America that was in like 1998 and it was amazing. It was really the first time everything clicked. It was the first time I just had an amazing time in school. I did really well, you know, I still party, but you know, somewhat responsibly. Um, and it was just, it, it really felt like it was like a turning point in, in me realizing what I actually wanted to do with my life. Right. You studied science, right? Biology in school. I studied wildlife biology. Uh, I was I studied pre-med at NYU for a year. Uh, I did wildlife biology at the University of Montana for a year. And uh, I ended up getting a 
a French degree, a bachelor's in French, um, just because I was trying to get out of school and I had a bunch of French credits and I was just trying to get out of there. It's funny though, because it seems un- it seems unlikely for someone to go from science and biology uh, into cooking, but if you add up, you know, loving food, loving the chemical reaction from drugs and the chemical reaction from science, becoming yeah. involved in cooking makes sense, I think. Yeah, I think well, both my parents worked in hospitals. My like my dad's a chemist and my mom's a microbiologist. So it was just kind of like a thing where I just thought that I wanted to be a doctor when I was younger. And then as soon as I got to like my pre-med courses, the first my first year of college at NYU, um, I just realized that I wasn't a career path I wanted. And then the wild biology, you know, I'm still like extremely concerned about conservation and environmentalism. And these things are still important to me. And as a chef, you know, they involve sustainability. Um, and these things are all still important to me. Um, but I just felt like that isn't exactly what I wanted to focus on in school. I think if, if I went back, I could probably finish a degree in wildlife biology. Um, but it was just, you know, I was like studying barbed wire with cowboys in class. And like, it just seemed like it was like, <laughs> a little bit too, too far out there for me. Right. Um, right. <laughs> but what about, did you feel a correlation between being like, Oh, like a, a drug user, like an, an accomplished drug user, and then sort of the reaction that comes from mixing food. Like, did you see a correlation when you were doing it, or am I stretching here? No, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think there's definitely like biology and science and chemistry in food, and I think there's definitely chemistry in a lot of the you know the drugs that we did during the nineties. You know, it was like you know it was ecstasy and you know ketamine and um, you know, a lot of our friends, you know, made, made, um, made the drugs for us, you know? So there was, there was definitely a little bit of chemistry and science in that. That's for sure. See, I, I was a horrible heroin addict, you know, that was the, the, and I was a horrible heroin addict for many, many years. And, uh, and when I first started doing ecstasy, I could tell when the ecstasy had heroin in it. And I, and I yeah. always loved the ecstasy with the heroin in it. Um, were, were your friends who made the drugs, did they? Did you know what they were putting into the pills, or was it the pure MDMA? How did it work? Uh, yeah, I mean, we could kind of like, it'd just be like test batches, you know? It'd be like, yeah, a little ecstasy with a little bit of heroin in it, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. And like, I just, I was never a big heroin fan whatsoever. I did it a couple of times, and like, it did not make me feel good whatsoever. It made me really sick, actually. Um, yeah. Isn't that but, so funny, though, how like, the personal biology impacts the different chemistry on you. Like you loved yeah. Coke and like Coke basically did nothing for me. Like I was just yeah. talking to my friend about it. It's just crazy. Yeah. I like to go faster. I still have like a very fast paced addictive personality. And, and, I still get, get like three, four hours of sleep sometimes. <laughs> really? That must be difficult. Yeah. No. It it is difficult. I mean, it just hasn't changed. I'm just you know between that transitioning out of that and just working, you know, as a chef at night for like the past, you know, literally, I've only worked at night. Even as like you know, as an executive chef in my the last part of my career, where a lot of chefs transition into earlier hours, I still focus on working at night. So I'm just like very programmed to work at night to be up at night. Um, and I'm very much conditioned to like be able to function on like four to five hours of sleep. Totally. Um, and, and everyone connects the restaurant industry with drugs, you know, with, you know, kind of, uh, 
sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of thing, late night New York restaurant scene. Was that your experience when you were working in restaurants in New York in the beginning? Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, I mean, we would, I mean, as a, as a cook team, we would all go out, you know, we would all just like leave the restaurants together, um, you know, like 10 of us from Jean-Georges and, you know, a handful of other of our other friends from other restaurants, and we just like hit the bars downtown. We go to like Lower East Side, you know, we go to the Village. Um, some of us would break off and go to the club, and then you know, as we got older, you know, it became like you know, like after after hours on like Lower East Side, and right. like you know, it was just like it was a cycle and it was a thing. But it was it was it had it, it had its moments. It was fun. I wish I could have done it responsibly, but at the end of the day, um, New York pretty much like chewed me up and spit me out. Right. Even though you're from there, you know, it can do that. And like an addict, an addict doesn't really have another way to do it. Right. I mean, it's like the, idea. Yeah. I wish I could have used heroin responsibly, but it didn't, yeah. it didn't pan out that way. Um, yeah. when did it start getting sad? And like, when did you start noticing that it was like not a livable situation? Um, I think the, so the first time I stayed up for three days, I was already kind of slipping at Jean George, um, kind of showing up late and, you know, yeah, pretty much just showing up late on drugs. And I remember the first time I stayed up for three days in a row, um, I just fucking crashed on my friend's couch and like didn't wake up for like two days and like literally everyone was looking for me like my family my employers like all this shit it was bad and he was just like kind of stuck in the middle because everyone was like calling him and like I'm just like passed out on his couch for like two days so um that was like one of the, the defining moments and you know I had a meeting with John George and he pulled me aside and asked me if I was sure I wanted to work there and I said yes and you know, he gave me like two weeks off, kind of like suspension a little bit. And I came back and, you know, nothing really changed. Um, so he ultimately, you know, they ultimately let me go. Um, I think the reason was like not working enough. Um, it was pretty obvious that he had, had a pretty big drug addiction. Totally. Um, and then I worked at just like a bunch of like shitty, shitty places, like all through downtown like two or three just like shitty bars with like my other really good friends who was like kind of going through the same thing and we would just like do drugs with the owners and just like be like tweaked out and like you know like roach infested you know bars and like you know shitty sandwich restaurants you know it was just crazy and then uh i I helped some other friends open up a restaurant and you know that was kind of like a whole another party scene and you know, he was an old friend of mine because we were cooks together at George, and he basically told me like he gave me an ultimatum that either I could, I, he was like, you can still work here, but you have to go to rehab. So I checked into an outpatient program in Union Square. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, I had no clue. I had no clue what I was doing. I had no clue what recovery meant. Um, I don't even really think I understood what my addiction really meant. And, you know, I would drink, you know, before I went to, you know, our meetings and, you know, the same friends who were like, you need to go to rehab, you know, I, they would be like, well, you should be able to just hang out and have a couple drinks and be fine, you know, um, when I was in rehab. So I don't think any of us really understood what, what I was supposed to be doing or what, 
you know, recovery looks like so early on. So basically it took me like a full two years. You know, I moved to California. I worked there for a bit, got in a really, really horrible car accident mm. where I tore the car after drinking for 12 hours on New Year's Eve, came out like with just like a tiny scratch above my eye. I got like arrested one more time. And then I finally moved to Portland, Oregon. And my good friend from college, he had been in AA for a couple of years and we met and I just found myself in the same vicious cycle and I just asked for help. I finally asked for help. And, um, I had, by this time I had met some people who had been in AA. Um, I had met a bunch of sober chefs and I would hang out with them and then I would go straight to the bar after. But I think it was really meeting people in recovery that showed me that there's a better way of life out there. And it got me thinking about what I wanted for my own life and just kind of getting older and seeing people my same age, all these things that, you know, having houses and having kids and raising families and, you know, I'm, you know, gay and a bachelor and I don't necessarily want all those things, but right. I just, I just wanted a, a very, a more stable and successful life. And I had some sober examples in my life to kind of guide me to recovery and and it was great, you know. I, I I told my friend take me to an AA meeting, and that was almost eleven and a half years ago, and it's been amazing ever since. You know, I met my best friend in the rooms pretty early on, like within my first couple months, probably within my first month of recovery. She came up to me and she was like, "Who are you? Because you look different. You don't look like you're from here." <laughs> um, and and you know. She moved in with me like a few months later and, and we got to, you know, pretty much do, live our first eight years of recovery together. Um, so it was extremely amazing. And, and she has the same attitude I do. She's in music and and um, production. So, you know, we both, you know, were very clear about wanting to get sober, you know, not to hide or, you know, to take things away from our life, but to be able to live the life that we've always wanted to live. So, you know, we'll still go to festivals and we'll still travel and we'll stay up all night. And, um, but we do it sober, you know, and, and we're happy. So it's good. No, it's everything. I mean, just, it's a, it's a remarkable thing when you can go from a bad life to a good life by like making a shift like that. You know, it's like, I mean, I, I had nothing and now I have two kids and a house and, you know, whatever. Like I, I have, and I have dopey and, and like, and I can reach out to people. And I mean, like just the ability to be able to talk to you is a miracle for me. Like, I think it's so cool. Like, um, like also I think that your positive attitude, like it's just like, it's obvious, like on the show, like, you, I mean, I'm certain you would have gotten to the finals this time if you hadn't hurt yourself. I'm certain of that, and I don't know if that's annoying to hear or not. Because no, I, 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 I think I could have done it. Dude, <laughs> you were like, on. I mean, I think yeah, the back thing. I, I would never use that excuse. Some troll from tried to tell me I was using it as an excuse on Instagram, but it was an excuse. It, it led to some poor decisions. So. Who knows? I, I I know I would have made some other decisions if my back hadn't been out. I'll say that. Well, the question is, like, like my partner, I told you, like, my partner wound up uh, relapsing and overdosing, and it all and it all stemmed from an injury. You know, he like yeah. he like fucking was on vacation with his girlfriend, and he wanted to impress her by high kicking a, a punching bag, and it wound up ultimately killing him. You know, like when you when you hurt your back. 
like how do you deal with that in terms of being an addict? Well, and let me let me just break this down for the audience first. Uh, Chef Gregory was in Italy in the finals of Top Chef, and he packed his bags and he hurt his back. And I was worried about you as a fan who knew you were in recovery. You know, um, how was that? Uh, it was a lot. I mean, like the thing is, like my back's been a thing for like ten years, so it wasn't something new. Um, so. Th- the bad thing was like it's de- it was definitely the worst it's ever been in my whole life. So that was an unfortunate thing. But I mean, like I've never done any other drugs. Like since I got reco- since recovery, I haven't done anything stronger than like ibuprofen. Honestly, like I've had like mouth surgery. I just fucking like dealt with it. You know, I'm like far too scared. Like I didn't even, I didn't even take cold medicine. Um, but in Italy, uh. I was literally in so much pain. I was just like letting them put whatever in me, honestly, because of the situation. And I, I was pretty sure like it wasn't like anything narcotic, you know, because honestly, like none of it worked, you know, but I was like shots in my ass, like literally like twice a day, like would be like between like takes and, you know, I just like be in the bathroom, like with like the medic, like shooting a shot up my ass. Um, and like, they were just giving me this little liquid to take. And like, I literally had no clue what anything was, but I mean, I was so desperate. And after like the first couple of times I realized none of it really worked anyway. And like, I didn't feel any different. So I was like, dude, like whatever. Um, but I didn't really feel like that was a question of my sobriety. Um, but I just, I just kind of assessed it the first time and just went with it because it was such an extreme situation. Um, but yeah, um, were you scared? Yeah, and I just I just dealt with it, you know. Like I didn't. I'm not gonna like ask for painkillers. And I mean, listen, I, I want to live my life, and I, I don't want to be scared. But like at the same time, like I I chose to be in recovery, and I still work in a restaurant, and I still go to festivals and see people do drugs, you know. And that's like one thing. But for me. I don't want to fuck with it. You know, like I don't want to like take painkillers and like do all this shit. Like I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to taste alcohol, you know, like my recovery to me is extremely important and it's important that there's complete abstinence for me to have this life. I I totally understand. I just know that like the pressure you're, cause not only are you uh, in recovery, you're in another country you're in a, a, a really, really high stakes competition that's yeah. being televised. I mean, the pressure is like times a billion. Like, I, I mean, like that would be like, I mean, that's a real test, I think, because you, because you want it, you want to win. You know what I mean? When you win Top Chef, it's like this big, stupid thing. I think, obviously, you, when you get as far as you've gotten and the food looks as good as the food you make, it's like obvious the level. Like, I don't think there's that much difference between the person who won and the people who are in the finalists but I'm sure in your head it's like very high pressure no yeah I mean like I think the other very important part of the story is the in recovery I've learned that you know I think it's something maybe we've all learned that there are only certain things in life that you can control yes you know like working a program like this is something that we talk about every day you know, like you can only control certain things in life and only certain things you have control over. And really, it's really just your action that you have control over. So at some point in that back drama on Top Chef, I just had to accept that it was what it was. And I could only control what I cooked, you know, and and that was pretty much it. 
you know, and if, 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 it, if it was a situation that I was going to have to live in for that time, it just was what it was. And there's like literally anything, there's nothing I could do about it. You know, you did and it. You, you did it. I mean, in that, I just, I, yeah. you went home on, he went home on a dish, a, a truffle dish where you made this ridiculously delicious looking stew that wasn't truffly enough because it was a truffle challenge, but I'm sitting there like dying to eat your stew. I'm like, holy shit. And then you're bugging out and he's cutting up the truffle and the Italians are like aghast and it's like it's such a fucking scene um when you're when you're in it are you reflecting on your recovery like is that in your head are you yeah I mean that's like the first place I have to go to because I'm like dude this is like so fucked you know like I've trained you know like I've like given up two months of my life just to be here you know I literally trained for three months I have like this whole chart you know, I've wanted this so bad. Every day I've like woke up and up and like I've given myself this huge pep talk. I go to bed, give myself a whole pep talk. And, you know, I bought all this equipment and, you know, I recipe tested all this stuff back home in preparation. And, 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 I, and now I'm here, you know. So, I mean, the only place you can go to is your recovery and know that, you know, in life, you know, you will get what is meant for you, you know. And sometimes you don't understand but all we have control over is the things that, you know, is what we don't have control over everything. And you just have to accept that. And that's something I, I graciously accept, you know, and I will do everything I can in my power to, you know, manage situations and be the best person I can be within those situations. But sometimes the situations are shitty and you just got to suck it up. Totally. So that's, that's where, I, that's where I was at. No, I mean, and that's beautifully put. And it's like, uh, that's that's the whole deal what you just said and i don't know how many dopey fans are crazy top chef fans but i'm like a ridiculous top chef fan like i told you i haven't i have not missed an episode of top chef in the history of the whole stupid show <laughs> um now that i, I mean i have all too, so what's that say that again i've seen them all too so you, so you understand um yeah, I, get it. I have to tell you like and i'm not just blowing smoke up your ass the way you handled restaurant wars was like the most beautiful moment in Top Chef history because you weren't you weren't <laughs> fucking you. playing. Leanne's like, I want to make a pineapple ice cream. I want to make this. You're like, it's fucking rum raisin. Shut the fuck up. It's going to be rum raisin. And you knew you needed to call the fucking shots. You're not going to let anything slip away. You picked malarkey because that dude could handle the front of the house. You picked a team that could that could do it. And Kevin yeah. had this ridiculous team of, of like, fucking experts, 12 dishes. What the fuck? And what is he making a plantation theme of Black Lives Matter year? He's doing a plantation restaurant. What a crazy yeah, thing that was. It was, it was, yeah, there's a lot of controversy that you know a lot of a lot of that did not go over well overall it was nuts it was nuts because you you had the haitian restaurant and it was like family style and like really like roots and like every bit was super authentic and kevin's like i want to do something from plantation era south it's insane is that not insane uh he's he's very southern you know, I think maybe with this whole reckoning and what we're going through now, maybe he's reflecting a little bit on, you know, maybe some things he's said and done in the past. Um, but I can't speak for Kevin. I, I know that he has said some stuff that's saying that he's kind of going through some of his past, but he's just very Southern. He comes from a long 
old family of Southerners. So it just is what it is. I think for me, uh, you know, I think part of me coming back was a lot of redemption. And, you know, part of that was just really studying where I flawed my first time around. And, you know, part of being able to study the show is you kind of start to see what, what needs to happen in a certain challenge. You know, like I went down in my first season, I went down over the open fire cook at Plymouth, um, at the Plymouth, uh, yeah. the Thanksgiving challenge, you know, and, you know, uh, I had a f- huge fumble when we had a seafood cook off at the beach in Boston as well. You know, so like the first challenge, you know, I, I got to go over open fire. I got to cook seafood, you know, which two things that I'm, I'm extremely passionate about. For Restaurant Wars, we went down in flames on season 12 in Boston. I remember. Was that was a mess. It was a mess. Like, it was, I, I definitely, I had the underdog team. Um, the menu wasn't cohesive. The restaurant wasn't cohesive. I mean, the food wasn't even good within the restaurant. It made no sense. You know, our front house person got sent home. So, you know, it was pretty obvious what I needed to make happen um, for Restaurant Wars to work this season. And the twist with this season with the pitch um, was something different and unexpected. Um, but I knew that a, it had to be extremely cohesive. Um, B I knew it had to be extremely easy to execute. Um, and C I knew that with it being the pitch and presented that way, like there was like no way that I was not going home if we lost, you know, because truly, you know, either way it's either the the chef or the front of the house manager that goes home. Right. Um, and it being, a concept that I'm presenting, I'm pretty sure that I was going home. Like Kevin and I talked about it. We're like, dude, like it's either me or you going home. And we talked about that like the first night, um, back at the house. But, um, I knew that I could execute that food pretty much by myself. Um, because I'd done it before, you know, because it's all part of, you know, my plan to open my restaurant. So I've done that as a pop-up like a few times. And I knew that, um, I just had to trust people and build a great team. And, you know, I knew, that malarkey was going just to crush the front of the house. Like guys opened 19 restaurants. You know, so cool, what right? I, I love that. You know, um, yeah, Stephanie, you know, she has pastry skills. Um, it's one of her, uh, best culinary, you know, skills. Um, so I knew that, um, she's also extremely organized. Um, so I knew that I could rely on her for that. And Leanne is just, you know, a freaking badass workhorse. Um, and I knew that, you know, even though she was stumbling a little bit during the season, um, she had pulled me aside and she's like, listen, pick me for us on wars. I'll work extremely hard. Um, and I knew I could rely on her to do that, you know, and, and she, uh, too can bake and, um, she has great flavors. Um, and you know, so I knew what to coax out of people and we pulled it off. So I was really excited about that. You guys were like the bad news bears of top chef. You took them down. Uh, it was, it was great to have a ragtag group like you guys do it so well. I love that. Um, you talked about, Sober chefs, you know, kind of helping you when you when you made your transition uh, into into recovery. And uh, I, I had the pleasure of having uh, Chef Andrew Zimmern on the show. And you know, I'm around nice. I'm around a lot of these kinds of people, and I and I love it when I see. Uh, sober chefs and because the restaurant business is so fucked up and chaotic that people either die, wash out, or get sober. Um, like how how important do you think like the community of sobriety in the in the upper echelon of chefs is in the restaurant industry? So currently, uh, we have Ben's friends. Are you familiar with Ben's friends? I think I heard of it, but I'm not very familiar with it. Yeah, you should you should join us. So 
Uh, Ben's Friends was formed uh, a couple years ago. Um, some friends in South Carolina were uh, opening up some older kind of uh, industry vets. Um, Mickey Basque and Steve Palmer were opening a, I believe they're opening a hotel in South Carolina, and they called on an old friend of them, there's Ben, um, to be the chef. And he had a lifelong uh, struggle with alcoholism. They're opening this new hotel and restaurants. Uh, ben was just crushing work every day, but then every night he would go back to the ho- his hotel room and um, just drink all night. But he was hiding it from everyone. Ben ended up committing suicide um, during the restaurant opening in the hotel room oh that he was God. staying. So, uh, so Steve and Mickey decided that you know it was really important that we they form a recovery group that focused on food and beverage. So thus Ben's friend was formed. We have uh, different chapters all around the country, you know, um, South Carolina, uh, Portland, Seattle, uh, Ohio, um, uh, Austin. Um, So basically, you know, it's a recovery meeting. It's not AA. It's not Organized. It isn't a step work program. It's just a space where people in the food and beverage industry who are in recovery or trying to get sober um, or trying just to stop drinking and doing drugs. Um, it's just a safe space for all of us. So it, it allows us to focus on issues that revolve around the food and beverage issue, um, which, as you know, has an extremely high percentage um, of people with addiction issues. So, you know, we've seen people like, you know, if you're uh, a winemaker, you know, and you have to get sober, how do you go on with your life? If you're a sommelier or you're a bartender, you know, and you can't really talk about these things in an A meeting because, you know, some people in A like refuse to even go to a bar, you know? Totally. But, um, but for all of us who, you know, food and beverage is what we've done our entire lives, our entire careers, and it's what we're passionate about, and it's not something that we plan to stop doing. It's how you find a life and you find a balance um, within the food and beverage industry. So um, it's been extremely amazing. It's been extremely helpful. We started our Portland chapter um, a little bit over a year ago. Um, it's been really tremendous. And with this current pandemic, um, all our meetings have moved online. So it's been great to be able to um, go to different meetings in different states. And um, I host a meeting on Wednesdays um, at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and we have a bunch of people from all across the country and different levels and different times of their sobriety. And, you know, we just all talk about what it's like. And, um, you know, I think the most amazing thing is seeing people get sober online during this pandemic, it which, is, right? which, you know, which I would imagine is extremely, extremely challenging. Yeah. I mean, it must be, uh, it's crazy. Cause like people who are, I, I always would say when we started this pandemic situation, like now's the time to get clean. Cause everything is so fucked up anyway. No one's going to notice what a fuck up you are. You know what I yeah. mean? And, um, and so you got to wonder, I mean, I, I personally haven't met that many people who got clean in the past three months, but you know, they're out there. 
Um, yeah. And uh, and I heard, you know, I, I go to Zoom meetings occasionally, and a buddy of mine said he went to a Zoom meeting the other day, and the dude who was supposed to be telling his uh, story of experience, strength, and hope, all he said was how fucked up it was for the people who never got to experience a real meeting. But the, the converse of it is like that this Zoom thing is still saving lives. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Um, and so you're, I mean, you're 11 years into your recovery, you said? I am. And you're still doing meetings. I mean, you're still doing crazy service, it sounds like. Um, yeah, I mean, I think being of service feels good. Uh, you know, it's a balance between AA and Ben's friends, and sometimes Ben's friends kind of takes over. Uh, but I am on the board uh, of the uh, Alana Club here. I became a board member this year. Um, and, you know, I really appreciate the direction that our Alana Club is going in. And, you know, um, just I think just minor recovery. You know, I think just showing that we can recover and, you know, recovery isn't just about going to meetings and totally. being grateful. It's about being active members of society and, you know, having gym resources and having cooking classes and, you know, all these kind of sober living things that, you know, are normal, you know, and, and all these things are extremely possible and attainable. Um, and I, you know, I appreciate uh, being able to help move that message forward because, you know, I got sober again to, you know, live my life and I don't want to change a lot of the things that I do for fun and a lot of things that I feel good about just because I got sober and I don't want to live scared, you know? Um, so, um, I want to show people that it's possible to, to live, you know, life as you want it, you know, if you have a strong program. Totally. I mean, one of the things like when I got sober around 12 step as well, and, uh, and I would say things about, you know, people on medicated assisted treatment or people who don't want to go to a meeting or this or that. And over time, I realized what a waste of time. Any way that anyone can find recovery is amazing. You know, by any means necessary to, like, make your life better, it's amazing. Um, and we started a little, like, fake movement called the alt-recovery movement where basically mm-hmm. it says any way you can do it, we support you. You know what I mean? Yes. Like. And, like, I love to hear about Ben's friends, and I will totally check that out. And anyone yeah. in the Dopey Nation who's around food in this industry should check out Ben's friends. Now, I want to ask you something. Um, the currency of Dopey is often a Dopey story, uh, a dumb, great using or recovery story. Uh, can you share one with us? Um, yeah, I have one that's, like... <laughs> Don't be shy, I mean, chef. Come I have on. one that's really silly. Okay, but I—I uh, I don't know. I remember being in culinary school, and I don't know. I just ate a bunch of acid in culinary school for some reasons. <laughs> and I remember there's at the end of your run, um, you, there are like four restaurants, and you get to work in them. You work in the back of the house, and you work in front of the house. Um, so it's like like one week you're like all the chefs, and the other week you're all the servers. And I just remember coming off an acid trip and like just fucking laughing my ass off like throughout all of class. And it was just, it was just a mess. But I mean, it's like a silly story, but. Tripping, yes, yes. It's just like, (laughs) it's just like ridiculous. Like, can you imagine like you're like going to lunch, you know, at this like prestigious culinary school and like, some kid just like laughing his ass off and like, I'm just envisioning myself like 
coming off an acid trip at like 21, like trying to serve people food in a restaurant. And like, I just think it's so ridiculous. And I'm not surprised I got where I got in my addiction with stories like that so early on. Totally. And you, I mean, psychedelics and cooking is a weird, a weird combination. Like imagine you're coming off acid and it's the day they teach you how to butcher a fucking pig or something. Oh my God. It'd be a nightmare. And then here's the last thing. Okay. I have an idea. And I'm, I'm basically pitching this idea to anybody who might want to do it. And you're an amazing chef. You're an accomplished person. You're a New Yorker. I'm going to pitch you. Are you ready? Okay, okay, okay. Okay. As you know, I work, I work at Katz's. I've been around traditional Jewish stuff my whole life. I'm Jewish. I'm from New York, whatever. Um, fucking, we sell black and white cookies at Katz's, okay? Okay. Now, so I'm going to pitch you here. I'm going to tell you a story. It was years ago, it was before I got sober. I'm sitting at the back counter of Katz's. You know, I was like packaging meat and selling drinks and stuff. And everybody that works at Katz's is Dominican. And a Dominican kid takes a black and white cookie out of the case and he takes a knife, okay? And he cuts the frosting off the black and white cookie and he puts the black and white frosting together and he eats it. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? So at the end of my shift, I take a bunch of cookies and I go home, okay? And I invite my friend over and we get super high, okay? We smoke a bunch of weed and we're eating the cookies and I tell my friend what I saw the kid do. And I, and I said, let's do it. So we cut the fucking frosting off the cookie and we start to eat it. And I look at my friend and I say, it's black and white in every bite, okay? <laughs> And I had this dream, okay, of a new cookie that's that's a, it's a two sided black and white cookie. I call it yeah. I call it the Othello. And you remember the old game Othello, the chips with white yeah, on one. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. this cookie is called the Othello. It's black and white in every bite. And then and then then there's the white the white on white cookie, which is all of the privilege and none of the guilt. And then, and then there's the black on black cookie, which is so delicious it could be a crime. And we do three cookies in a package, and it takes over the world. The bougie New York City new take on the black and white. What do you think, Chef? You're black on white. It could be a whole thing. I like black and white in every bite. You're not into the white on white and the black on black. We could get rid of those. I don't care. Yeah. I'm not. I think it's just funny. I'm not married to that shtick. I like black and white in every bite too. It's beautiful. That's really good. That's really good. <laughs> If you want to jump into this thing, uh, you know, you have the, the credibility and the ability. I have nothing. I just have the idea. <laughs> I think it's funny. It was, I mean, I think you, you could sell, like, boxes. You could be, like, because then you'd have, like, every shade. If you mix, like, a little bit of white and, like, a lot of black and then just range. Like, so, like, a lot of black and a little bit of white, then you have everyone's skin tone. See? And then, and then you can have equality for all, and everyone will be reflected in the box cookies. Yes. Yeah. See, this is a good way to go with this. It's way better than my white on white, black on black thing. I think you're right. So black it could be a crime? I think, no, because it's black on black crime is an expression. It's a joke. That's yeah. not, no. It's bad not, now. Not, it's it's worse than Kevin black. cooking plantation food at, at yeah, restaurant yeah, wars. Yeah, you went there. That's Fuck. Okay, so I apologize. I'm, I don't mean it like that. I thought it was a good bit. I'm not offended, but... Um, okay, so forget. Let's lose that one. We'll lose the black-on-black black thing. And uh, why don't you... Will you consider this, though? Consider joining me in my crusade? <laughs> sure. Good. 
Um, and what's up? When's when's the, the Haitian restaurant going to come out? That food looks so good. Um, hopefully next summer. Um, probably going to start doing pop ups in like uh, a few weeks. Hopefully a few pop ups this winter. Um, hopefully pop up in a permanent space, semi permanent space until we can get going. But I'm really looking for this pandemic to kind of blow over. Um, and see what happens to restaurants in America. I mean, I think it's more important for, I definitely feel like I have a story to bring to the table, but, you know, I think it's pretty important that with people who have been doing this for quite some time get to reopen and I want to be supportive and I just want to kind of see what the American restaurant looks like next year before I kind of do mine because it's more important to me that I open up the restaurant of my dreams because I waited for so long to do it. Um, I'm not really in a rush and, um, I just really want to create something amazing and perfect in my eyes. Um, and I think that's going to take getting past Corona of, uh, quite a few more months. Totally. It's so scary. Like, like, uh, obviously our restaurant got, um, you know, no one's eating at Katz's people are, are picking stuff up there. I've been doing catering and I've been just feeding the hospital workers and, uh, and food insecure people and organizing those kinds of, uh, movements initiatives but like what a scary time it is to open a restaurant because you don't know when everything is going to just close again yeah yeah so yeah um dude it's been a total pleasure i really do appreciate you coming on and enduring my i didn't realize how racist my cookie joke was until you (laughs) you served it up to me fuck Thank you, though. It was, I hope that wasn't it. wasn't It wasn't. I mean, you understood. I, I have. A, I have a good heart. I. I mean. I. Oh fuck. My. My. Now I'm talking about my intentions when I'm making yes, terrible racist like cookie Jesus Christ. Like everybody else. You got that. You got that long apology on Instagram oh, now. I have a lot of. I have a lot of black friends, Chef. What? what what's wrong? Oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Um, please consider consider joining my Othello crusade. The black on black fucking thing is out. Forget that. And um, and uh, and thank you so much uh, for sharing some of your story on Dopey. It, it's so cool that you came on. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, Absolutely. man. Enjoy the beach. Thank you so much. Be well. You too. Bye. Thanks, man. Bye bye. So that was Gregory calling me a racist. What do you think about that, Ray? <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. That was great. You are a racist. I think I think Chef Gregory thinks I I, I practice systemic racism in all of my affairs, but I don't. I think, yeah, yeah, you should make reparations. I think. How I have to change the black on black cookie? Yeah, yeah, just yeah. I don't know. I don't think he I did. like. I really liked that interview. I thought he was great. He's very likable, and you know, he had a great story. It didn't have like a crazy bottom, but you know, it was like that's the story most people have. So you could relate to Gregory's story. Yeah, I don't think I don't think most people have like I was uh, I murdered someone. I was in jail and I was arrested and I wrecked my car. Was, a lot of people have wrecked cars, but he had a wrecked car. But a lot of people just have that of like slow, like oh my life is not working anymore. Right. He 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 and he managed to fix it and he managed to come back big time. And um, I thought it was great. I thought it was great to have him on the show. Besides him calling me a racist. <laughs> and um, and I do stand by the cookie, and I, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, the idea, the the way that drug addicts kind of uh, get attracted to food work is interesting to me. Yeah, I I didn't know about that until a friend of mine. It was like a sous chef, and he was telling me, no, the whole restaurant world is crazy like that. And then I found I heard that from other people. But yeah, it seems like 
a good way to get addicted to drugs is to get a job in the front or the back of the house. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think in my experience, like I, I, I would go to work high and there was a bunch of pot where I work, but like there was never hard drugs because I never worked those late night situations and I would always leave to get high, but I was never like in those Coke situations in, in restaurants or bars yeah. or whatever. Actually, when I was really young, I just moved to New York and my roommate was dating this girl and she worked at Windows on the World and Top of the World Trade Center. And she was this beautiful blonde girl and she was making, it was an unbelievable amount. I think it was $300 a night, which was just unbelievable. And she would do, she would, and he said, she just comes home and does coke and cries. And I just couldn't, like, if you're making that much money, why are you so sad? And I met her and she was very sad, but she would make all this money and then do coke like alone in her apartment. That's the first introduction I had to it, but I didn't, I didn't know it was related to the restaurant world. Yeah. I mean, that's also, you get cash, you work late. It's a whole, it's a real lifestyle kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so as always, I love to, uh, Share stories from the Dopey Nation, and we have a couple. Uh, would you like to read? And, and I think Ray usually does a terrible job reading the emails, but he always now he has something to prove. So, would you like <laughs> to read the, the the newest email we've gotten? Yes, I, I want to point out that it's really small type. I'm trying to make it bigger right now, but I I had to read. My sponsor made me read in our our meeting, and I've read in in meetings before and i've been on stage i've been in public i went into a panic attack and i couldn't tell what i was reading and i almost like like stopped and said like i can't do this and then he said i couldn't tell that at all so but i went into a total panic attack like a week ago reading at a meeting maybe, right, maybe it was a pavlovian response to me making fun of you for reading i badly. think that's what it was you you broke my confidence in reading Wow. And, but we have to read two chapters, I mean, two paragraphs, and I almost at the end of the first one, I had no idea what I had read. I read it, but I had no comprehension of what I read, but I got through it. Whenever, I read, I, read, whenever I read in a meeting, I like, I, I like try to read really well, and then when I'm done, I think, I read that really well, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is so stupid and funny. I think Chris was like that, too. Chris would, be yeah. like, Chris would read it, and he'd be like, yeah, I really read that well. Um, all right, read the, wanna, read the email. I want to turn my computer on its side like an iPhone, but that won't make the type bigger. Okay, here we go. Okay, so I've been listening to the podcast for the past month or so, and I've been burning through episodes. I love recovery and the 12 steps of AA, but as we all know, it can get dry and boring sometimes, especially for the hardcore low-bottom addicts like myself. That being said, finding Dopey was the best thing that has happened to my recovery in a long time. Hold on, Ray, I'm, Ray, 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 hold on. You're doing, a, you're doing a really nice job with this, by the way. Now you're trying to break my confidence. No, you're doing a really nice job. I just want to say that okay. that was a great start. So continue, do you hear, you hear how Dopey is helping his recovery, by the way? I did. I can understand what I'm reading, Okay. Which is, I didn't do two weeks ago. I'm 22 months clean off of heroin, coke, and Xanax. I've been an IV drug user for the past 15 years. Oy. 15 years riddled with jails, infections, overdoses, double-digit rehabs, double-digit sober living houses, four methadone clinics, four Suboxone wow. doctors, a short bid in prison, contracting hepatitis C, and enough pain to make me want to take my life, but just enough faith that there's something better out there to keep me from actually doing it. I know that sounds like a long, dramatic list. But in reality, there was far more bullshit packed in there than just that. 
I can re- I can really relate to Chris's story a lot. God rest his soul. It was heartbreaking when I found out that he had overdosed, and I just like many just like many of my friends have. Addiction is such a fucked up thing, cunning, baffling, powerful. Isn't that the fucking truth? After all the shit that I've gone through and all the painful experience that make up my life, I finally have found a solution, a way out, a relationship with God that I only found as a result of working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now that I brought up the solution, let's go back to the problem with some straight fire dopey. Okay, let's set the stage here. I had just gotten out of prison on December 26, 2015. The whole time I'm locked up, I was thoroughly convinced I was going to do the right thing and never go back to drugs and never end up in prison again. That resolve and willpower wouldn't be enough, though. Again, again. So in North Carolina, if you get released and don't have a ride, they will get you a ticket for a Greyhound and take you to the station. On the morning of the 26th, they did just that. I step out of that car, a free man, with a bus ticket back to my hometown in North Carolina, wearing the all-white outfit that that they release prisoners in. It's about 7 in the morning, and I step onto the bus, and I see a really hot chick stretched across the first seat. So naturally, I decide to get in the seat directly behind her. About 30 minutes go by, and she sits up, turns around, and asks me what time it is in the sexiest accent ever. We kick up a conversation, and it turns out she is a doctor that I had come that had come over from New Zealand to spend a couple of weeks traveling and visiting friends. I couldn't believe my fucking luck. I was like, "Thank you, God. You know, you always know what I need. You're giving me a little getting out of prison gift." Come to find out, her friend had told her that sometimes there are inmates that ride the Greyhound, so to be careful. Well, I told her that I am that guy that they told you about, but you don't have to be careful because I am a good guy. Needless to say, we linked up that night, and I was so overwhelmed by having just gotten out and being anxious and around new people that I did what we always do in that situation, and I got fucking trashed, drinking copious amounts of liquor and smoking a bunch of weed. Neither of those things are my jam. So within a week, I was right back to doing the same thing I always do, shooting speedballs and popping totem poles like they're candy. That was the start of a pretty fucking gnarly run that consisted of smoking a bunch of PCP and shooting a bunch of molly in my neck. I still can't (laughs) believe I'm alive sometimes when I look back at all the crazy shit I've been through. Well, I just wanted to give you all a story. I don't know if you'll even read it, but if you do, hit me back on my email and let me know. I really love that you guys... I love what you guys have going on at Dopey Nation, and I appreciate all the support that people show to each other. It's like AA without the judgment and drama. Dave, I think you're on to something in this alt-recovery deal. Much love and toodles for Chris. Evan. Great, great email. That was amazing. But the only problem <laughs> is he doesn't say what happened with the woman. That's what I was wondering, what happened after that. And he somehow, is he clean now? Like, Yeah, he has 22 be- months clean. Oh, yeah, okay. But the question is, Evan, if and I didn't write back to him, so Evan, I'm going to write back now, but I need to know what happened with the woman, and uh, let's hear what happened between the drinking and the weed to the uh, shooting Molly in your neck. I think that's uh, it's a fantastic yeah. dopey email. I think though. it's it's either they waved, they were like, oh, good night, nice, I mean, goodbye, nice meeting you the next day, or she like got like sucked into like some crazy shit that he did and like ran away. Well, I'd like to know what happened, you know. Yeah, let's, let us know. Um, and, I like the Greyhound bus. I was on a Greyhound bus recently, and 
I heard the same thing. Like somebody was like, I just got out of prison and I'm on this bus and I'm going back home. You know, when my aunt got out of jail, I found out that when they let you out of jail and she was like 86 years old, when they let you out of jail, sometimes you just walk out the front door and if, and these, some guys like these, like, scammers they look at the girls that are in jail and they know when to pick them up and they wait outside and then they like take them back into the life of like prostitution and drugs wait ray your aunt got out of jail at 86 years old yep well you know how you just say, got up why do you, you say that so casually why did you have an 86 year old aunt in prison well she just went in she went in at 80 why because she stole a bunch of money from who? She stole a million. She stole a million dollars. She embezzled a million dollars. She had like an accounting firm, and she would do the accounting for all these doctors all around the South. So she drove around like doing their accounting, and she was skimming, skimming, skimming to feed her gambling habit. And then she got busted, and you know she was in like a waiting trial for like a year. I'm like, what good is this to keep an old lady in prison? I mean, we had a family reunion, and we're like waiting for our aunt to show up and. My mom, everybody's like, where is she? And my mom's like, I don't know. But she knew the whole time that she was, she'd been arrested. That's they came crazy. and like bashed her door down with a, you know, ramrod. Very dramatic. That is a crazy story, Ray. Crazy. Yeah, and she got out. And I, yeah, I, I hung out with her last Christmas and she told me all these stories. Like she ran that prison. Like she was like the queen of the prison. I was sure the story was going to be that you took the inmate on the Greyhound bus into the bathroom and had your way with him. But instead, we wound up with an 86-year-old aunt in jail. <laughs> so there you go. Now, those, when you ride Greyhound buses, I've ridden a few recently. They're, they are crazier than they used to be because airplanes are so cheap now that, like, if you – there must be a reason you're on a Greyhound bus now. Yeah, Dopey Nation, if you have Greyhound bus stories that you can share with us, send an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com or a voicemail. And now I'm going to play a dopey voicemail. You excited to hear a dopey voicemail, Ray? Yeah, let's hear it. On a scale of one to 10, how excited to hear it are you? 10. I'll be honest. You think it's like a six? 10? All right, here we go. What's up, Dave? Dopey Nation. It's Adam checking in from Alabama. And uh, I was just listening to the interview with Mike Malak and uh, and then the girl's voicemail about the OC80s. And um, just reminded me of my own experience with OC's 80s. And that was back when I was, uh, was probably about 16. Uh, I just got a car and me and my brother, he had a, an aunt. He's not my real brother, but he, we moved him in when we were young. That's a whole different story for a different time. Anyways, so um, he had this aunt up in, lived up in, I live up uh, in the northern part of Alabama and there's mountains around. So she lived up on, on a, like kind of on a mountain at a place called Hollis Crossroads. And so we would drive up there um, every few days and she got prescribed OC80s, the, the green ones. And uh, we used to call them the Oscar De La Hoyas <laughs> or the, uh, the green monsters. And, uh, man, we would go up this mountain and get up there and she, she didn't want us shooting anything. So she would like, she would just give them to us. And then we was turning around and selling them for $80, a dollar a milligram, just like the girl from, uh, Kentucky was talking about. And, uh, so we'd get them for free or sometimes we'd have to pay, you know, 15 bucks for them. And, uh, you know, she'd make us snort them in front of her. Well, then finally we, we got to where we could steal them from her. 
and uh, and we just had all these all these OCs just you know every every few days going and getting these OCs. Well, the the trip down the mountain, you know, mind you, we go up and it's just windy turns. If you've ever been in you know in the mountains anywhere, just think about the most winding and turning turns that you can think of. And so I've already snorted a whole OC80, and I, you know, we're driving down these hills, and I can you know, barely hold my head up. And um, I don't know, man, it was just crazy. Uh, you know, I remember one time we, we came around the turn, and uh, like we were coming out of a stop sign and turning, and there was a guardrail on the right. And uh, I guess me and my brother both nodded out, and I was turning. And then, like, as I was turning, I nodded out and went right into the side of the guardrail. And my brother bounced his head off of the uh, the lock on the side of the, the car, on the inside of the car. Like, you know, old old school Hondas, you know, the, the locks kind of stick up a little bit. He busted his eye and he woke up and he thought I'd hit him. <laughs> he thought I'd hit him in the eye. And... uh he was fucking irate. I was like, man, chill out. Anyways, uh, I don't know, man. It, it, crazy times. A little crazy story. It probably sounds stupid, but uh, I hope everybody stays strong out there, man. And fucking toodles for Chris. The thing I love most about that voicemail, I mean, I think it's funny that the brother thought he punched him in the eye. But the thing I love most is the straight Alabama accent. Yeah, when I go home, I'm like, I forget about the accent. Like, I forget it's like they have a thick accent down there. I used to have that accent. When I was growing up, I had that accent. Do you know what I think would be so cool? If, like, people around the world in the Dopey Nation all sent in, like, a voicemail saying toodles for Chris. Because to hear that Alabama toodles for Chris, (laughs) it just felt very special to me. Yeah, that's good. So, Dopey Nation, if you live someplace far away... I wonder, do you th- I've never heard from, oh, I heard from that one American kid in Japan who hates Dopey now. But yeah. I, I, I've never heard from an actual proper Japanese person for Dopey, if you or an Indian person for Dopey. If you're listening in one of those, or a real, you know, there was a, a, a guy from Africa named Sawadi that used to listen to Dopey. Those people, you people, you international dopes with cool accents, send in voicemails. Record them on your phone and send them to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. It's a worldwide project. Send in your toodles for Chris. Yeah, global, worldwide toodles for Chris to be played on the Dopey Day episode. What do you say? Sounds good, right? I think it's, I think it's great. Yeah, Dopey Day. That's coming soon. It's coming soon. So let's get, yep. let's get it on. Let's get it happening. And, uh, and, and before you go, Ray, do you want to hear a dumb fucking story? Yeah. Is this you? Yes. I was up in the <laughs> attic, okay? And yeah. uh, I was on the phone trying to make Dopey bigger. I, I spend half my time dealing with cats and selling food and stuff, and the other half of my time trying to make Dopey bigger. And I was on this phone call. I was on this phone call with this woman who works at a production company, and... Um, and I knew her from years ago. And, um, and I got comfortable on the phone and I start pushing my chair back. And I didn't realize that there's a hole in the floor in the attic. <laughs> and it's like the hole is like oh, as no. big as a knot. And my whole chair falls through the hole. I fall out of the chair and I'm still on the phone trying to sound like. <laughs> and you didn't want to tell her. No, I didn't want to tell her. And, uh, and then I get off the phone and Nora and Linda come home. And, and Nora's like, 
Daddy, did you know that there's a hole in the ceiling in the bathroom? <laughs> and my chair leg went through the floor and put a hole in the ceiling in the bathroom. Now you have to repair the ceiling in the bathroom. Now we have to repair the ceiling in the bathroom. And then I heard back from the woman that night because uh, she's helping me to make Dopey bigger and more expansive. And do you know what she told me? To what? That for a couple of years uh, back in the day, she was addicted to heroin. No. Oh. Coincidence. Like, I think Car- not. Karma. Coincidence. I think it's kismet, not kismet. Kismet. Yeah, kismet. But um, Ray, as always, it's been a delight to have you back on the Dopey Show. On a scale of one to ten, how would you say that this experience has been for you? Ten. Really? Ten. Ten plus. What, Eleven. What's a bad experience like for you? Tell me. How? What was the experience of going to the country and being there for three days like on a scale of one to ten? That was good. That was fun. I don't know. One to ten? Yeah. Seven? You give it a seven. How about the <laughs> healing Appalachia trip on a scale of one to ten? What would you give it? <laughs> I, I was just thinking about that just this morning when I was on the train. I was like, I never really, I've known Dave a long time, but I never really knew him until I spent a weekend with him and slept in the same room and realized now I understand why he had to take heroin to like be, to calm his nerves because he's so like, <laughs> His his head is just spinning constantly. I've I'd never spit like that long with you. And I was like, oh, now I get it. He's like always like this, and he needs something to calm him down. I would take care of. Well, I did take heroin, but I would take heroin if I was you also. Well, come on, Ray. I haven't taken heroin in years. I know, I know. You figured out how to deal with what goes on in your head without taking heroin, which is what we discussed the other day, like a better way to deal with it. But. I get it. Like the first time you feel heroin, you're like, ah, oh, some eat some some peace now in my head, which is like constantly going, going, going. My thoughts are going so fast, and I'm I'm anxious and obsessive and and uh, and uh, you know about everything. It's totally true. I found that peace from weed too. When I feel sad when people say they get paranoid from weed because I found maximum peace from from smoking weed back in the day you you never got paranoid that's so weird no i never got paranoid from from smoking pot um and uh you know and i still have i mean one of the the dangerous things is that i still definitely have reservations about weed you know i know you do especially on a hot day like this with a nice icy bong putting on a little bob marley kaya on the porch (laughs) taking bong rips like the old days but, yeah, you've said you've said to me. I think in the future, when I'm an old man, I'm gonna like rip some bong joints. Yeah, and the and when bong I'm, hits. Hopefully, when I'm an old man, I can do that. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't love my recovery. I do. I just and I'm not willing. I also know that if I started smoking weed now, that I would stop getting shit done. Like pretty much, like it wouldn't be like unilaterally stopping. But like I'm also so unorganized. Like I'm so disorganized that it takes sobriety to get things done. Because if I yeah. wasn't sober, I would be the disorganization would just be like crippling. Yeah. So maybe when you're, I don't know, seventies too young, maybe eighty, and then you can like like have a bong hit. If I get rich, affect- if I get rich, I could have a bong hit at seventy, I think. But if I don't get yeah. rich, it's going to be like eighty. And then you're not going to go because I knew you for a while where you just smoked weed and you weren't searching for heroin. So maybe if you're 70, then you will be like, just do a bong hit and then you won't get heroin and you won't, you know, and you will have provided for your family. You'll be like retired and it doesn't matter if you lose your job because you won't lose your job. Well, hopefully I'll be retired at 70. Probably not, though, right? 
Probably not. That's so fucked the way up. The way I I know like I know something about your finances, and probably you're not going to be retired. Not, but if Dopey hits it, I will. If Dopey hits, you will. What are you doing for laundry before you go? I, I you know what, my neighbor moved out. He worked for Google, and they're like, work from home. He's like, fuck this shit. I'm not going to pay three thousand for a studio apartment. So he moved to Miami. He has a Two bedroom, two bath on the ocean. And he said, he wrote to me, he said, do you want my sofa? Do you want this? He gave me all this stuff. He gave me all his groceries, you know, olive oil and all this stuff. And then he gave me just everything from his house. And then he left a bag out there after he was gone. And I opened it up and it was socks and underwear. So I have like a fresh supply of socks and underwear. So I haven't had to do laundry. You never cease to amaze me, Ray. You, you got these new underwear and socks from your neighbor, or was it his old underwear and socks? They're clean. They were freshly washed, but they weren't new. I think he didn't mean for them to be mine, but the super was mopping the floor, and he put them in front of my, my door, and I opened it up, and I'm like, I don't think he gave these to me because he would have said, hey, I left you some underwear. But I put them on. I'm like, this is good. Amazing. Amazing. All right, Ray. Clean underwear now. As always, it was a pleasure to have you back on the old Dopey Show. And um, we'll see you soon. I'll talk to you in the morning. Bye, Dave. Bye, Ray. Now, I feel remiss to not have my dad at least on every other episode. And he wasn't on last week. And a few people asked about him. And I know it goes to his head, but why not? Here he is, back on the show. Welcome back, Dad. Yeah. Hi. Hello, everybody. It it does go to my head a little bit, so that's why you shouldn't have me on so often because it it's not good. It makes me feel like I, I'm supposedly important or something. So it makes you feel almost too good, like you're high on dopey. <clears throat> that's yeah. I guess. Wow. That's a weird thing to say. Yes. Yeah. I'm high on dopey. That's true. I I think it's great. And I Dad, is there, is there anything you want? to update the Dopey Nation about? Because I just saw you, and I can't think of anything really relevant that you have to share with anybody. But can you think of anything that maybe people should hear? Well, the dock is still up, even though it's getting closer to the water. Uh, I'm cleaning up rocks around the, the, the water. And for the person who says that I'm so wealthy, Dave, uh, describe the... Describe, uh, the uh, Motor vehicles that I own. Well, he has, he has a silver yeah. Mercedes convertible and, uh, <laughs> and a oh, Bentley. And what about that? Didn't you get that new Tesla that we've been waiting for, the Tesla <laughs> pickup truck? Yeah, I was ready to buy it. Yeah. No, tell him about the broken down robo. That's the, that's the, uh, that's the, bo- the boat we, I have. Oh, he has, yeah, a, he, has a, he has a, he has a, he has a two schooners that sail the, <laughs> the Finger Lakes and uh, and not to mention, he has four peacocks that stroll around <laughs> in his gardens. Right, Dad? I never, I never should have even brought this up. All right, Dopey Nation, just don't listen to a word he's saying. All right, so you want me to do Hold these on. reviews? What do to you want? really understand the scope of my father's wealth, he has Tupperware with five different cereals blended together in one. That's some serious, like, indulgence right there. Dad, what well, do you what do you what, what are you putting in your cereal mix these days? Well, whatever. <laughs> uh, actually, it's the stuff that Nora likes. That uh, what do you call that sugary stuff thing? Frosted flakes. Um, I got frosted flakes. Yeah, and the, the one with all the colors. Lucky Charms. Uh, 
Yeah, Lucky Charms, Forsyth Flakes, yeah. Now, Dad, yep. when, you're, when you're picking your cereal mix, how do you make the choices of which cereals you want in the mix? Uh, the, what's on sale. That's, that's how you do it. Well, how, well, why would a rich guy like you care about what cereal is on sale? This is amazing. Well, that's, see, that's probably the reason how you could get wealth is by being careful of how you spend your money when you're young. And, and I haven't you know, figured out how to change. Well, though I am changing. I am indulging a little bit more. Uh, like buying you dinner. Yeah, that's an indulgence. Okay, he bought us a beautiful uh, Italian dinner the other night. Thank you for that. And look for the Al-Anon podcast of how to build wealth even on heroin coming this fall. Um, Dad, you want to do a podcast? Wait, well, I, did not, I did not build wealth on heroin. No, I mean it could help an addict you know, who's maybe oh, coming yeah. off heroin figure out a way to build some wealth. It's easy. Yeah, it's easy. I'll tell you, all, all, it, is, all it is is, uh, is, is common sense and, uh, and I guess discipline too maybe. All right. Okay, are we ready? What are we doing? Yeah, why don't you read... Some, uh, now, I didn't say this at the beginning of the show, and I'm sure everybody who's still listening now already does this, but please subscribe to Dopey on iTunes, leave a five-star review, and maybe my father will read it. Um, all right, Dad, read a... Uh, why don't you read the review that says Dave and Chris first? Okay. Uh, Dave and Chris by Christian Vale. Doesn't that sound like a famous name? Christian Vale or is it a different name like that? Um, anyway, Dave and Chris, even listening to their takeout orders interrupt the podcast is funny. Greatest podcast of all time. Shouts out to Alan. Oh, because he's my favorite. Best podcast of all time. Wow, that's very nice. Uh, yeah, you guys used to order, order dinner. I, God, it was such a ridiculous thing. You would, you would try to figure out how to order dinner while you're still doing the show. It was, we were I think it was annoying to me. I don't know if it was annoying to the rest of the podcast nation. Christian Vale loved it. All right, Dad, now read the newest one, and, uh, and, then, and then we'll be done. Uh, well, I see this Seinfeld on drugs, that one, the only addiction podcast I've been able to keep in my rotation. Seinfeld on that drugs. One? That sounds good. Yeah, that's what, it's, that's what it said. And what about that one star? Why don't you want me to read that one star review? Which one star review? Ah, you didn't see it, huh? Where? Well, it, the title is Morons. I think we did that one already, but read that one, sure. <laughs> it says Morons by VC at O. And he writes, this is what he writes. These guys are pathetic. So obviously uh, this guy is. Uh, I think uh, he, Dad. I, I, I think he's talking about what? you, probably. No, what are you? No, he's not. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. No, you better you better accept that he's referring to you and Chris. That's who he's referring to. Oh, that doesn't seem uh, very nice. That's not very nice, no, Vciato. And for some reason, my dad's iTunes is not showing the latest ad. I'm going to read it. It's from a guy who calls himself Shellster sixty six. And, uh, and that's our cousin Shelly, I think, Dad. What do you think? Well, how did he, how, how did he name himself? Shellster, Shellster 66. He says, it's not really cousin Shelly. I'm just joking. He no. says, for 20 years, I've been driving eight hours from Virginia to Ohio to see family, and I've always hated those hours in the car. After discovering Dopey back in May, I looked forward to spending the 16-hour round trip last week with Dave and Chris. 
they made what is normally an incredibly boring drive fantastically fun. I laughed often and hard, and I felt like I was on a road trip with my friends. If you haven't listened to this podcast yet, what are you waiting for? Thanks, Dave, for being you and for sharing yourself with us. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris, which is very nice. Nice. Very good. Yeah, very, very good. How do you get the, how do you publicize these reviews to get, uh, you know, the non-Dopey Nation to hear this? How, how does that get done? I don't know. You always ask stupid questions like that. What's the difference? Where do you, what are you pu- talking about? Where do you publicize a review like that? I don't even know what you mean. I, my dad, my dad looks at Facebook and he calls me and he goes, David, you get such nice emails. I said, Dad, you can't see my emails. What do you want to, what do you want to do with that? What do you want to do with the reviews well, that are posted? Well, if everybody, if people heard the reviews, you would, you know, build up the audience more. Even though the Patreon is zooming off the charts now, it's like a lot now. Yeah, we're doing pretty good with the Patreon. So yeah, Dopey Nation, if you're, if you want to help out with the Patreon, maybe one day I could not work at Katz's, and maybe, maybe Dopey could be a whole entity with music and stories and more episodes and episodes about drug addicts and all sorts of stuff. Uh, so if you can kick down to Patreon, that would be awesome, and my dad would be so excited, right, Dad? Right. Yes. Wouldn't you yes. be quelling? Wouldn't you be quelling over more Patreon? Yeah. Right. It would. It, yes. It would make me feel better. Do you do quell about dopey <laughs> Patreon to all the altercockers on the beach at Babcock Lake? They have no clue of any of this stuff. No. That's probably no, for the best. I don't. I don't. I. I we're keeping. We're keeping. Like we're just. Oh yeah, this thing with the July twenty fourth. That's uh, going to be interesting because doesn't your name come up when you put the thing over your eyes? Well, that's the idea. Is that every? I am no one. You are no one. We are all just in support of addicts. You know that whole thing. I understand, but the anonymity is gone. Then, right for sure. Not really. We're all going to put the dopey logo over our eyes. All right. Well, you, you'll you'll do it for me, and you'll. All right. We'll get it done. All right. So you want me to read soup, Dave? It's sup, Dave. That's how young people say what's up. They say sup. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I, I messed that up. Sup, Dave. Okay, I got it. You want me to read it then? Was feeling inspired last night and decided to write a dopey-themed poem. Shout out to my girl, Abs, and the rest of the gang. This one's for the dopey nation. All of us fiends and dopes, and don't forget crackheads who bum all our smokes. For the ones who put on a smile and go to work. And the ones who rifle through alleyways in search of that hit they crave. For the ones near and far, those working from home, their doors ajar. And last but not least, the ones out on the streets doing their best to make ends meet. Dopey Nation, we're stronger than most, especially with Dave as our host. Stay recovered and strong is what he'll say when the next hit of Dopey drops this Friday. And maybe you don't fuck with poems quite like I do, so I'll sit down and let Dave do his thing. But before I go, I've just got to say, toodles for Chris. I expected there. I think you messed up the rhyme at the end. There had to have been a rhyme. Wait, wait, at the no, end. wait a minute. No, wait a minute. I didn't finish it. But before I go, just oh, here it goes. But before I go, I've just got to say, toodles for Chris, and see you Friday. So he didn't screw up. You screwed it up. Yeah, I did. I did. Well, this phone, you know, you got to keep. Wait a minute. Now, then he says, "You rock, man," and it's Ryan who wrote this. So thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Dad. 
Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. You want, you want to say yeah. goodbye? Yeah. Okay. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. All righty. Good night, right, Dave. Greetings and salutations, Dopey Nation. I just have to walk around my neighborhood But I wanna be good so bad I wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad But bad desire is all I ever had And I wanna take a ride up in the sky And watch as aeroplanes just pass me by And I wanna see a Learjet liner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive And I wanna be good so bad I wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good, so bad But bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand My shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand Wonder would they pay it any mind when I leave this busted city far behind? I'll, I'll take the high road however far it winds Cause peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad I wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad But bad desire's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had and these suckers make me mad, and it's all I ever had. And I wanna call my dad, and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad, and it's all I ever had. And I wanna call my dad, and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Fucking toodles for Chris. Subsumers. And shout out to Scott Wick, the rap god, by the way. I mean. Everyone else is great too, but zoomers, just, you know, zoomers, zoomers. It's the rap god, so yeah. Toodles.